Um, but uh, yeah, I just want to give you a, a quick intro before we kick it over to uh, uh, Arlen. Uh, so Missy and I, uh, we've been here since the beginning of the church start. This church is awesome. It is moving. The spirit is moving. And uh, we have a lot of young families and a lot of marriages. And uh, we, we really are passionate about uh, just because we are in the midst of raising young children and uh, we're married and uh, we realize how much conflict there can be and, and how much of a struggle that can be. But on the other side of risk is opportunity and the opportunity for us to raise our children and, and also invest in our marriages from a biblical foundation, a biblical worldview, and how powerful that is in a world where truth is often um, hard to come by. So, I mean, we have that truth, and we want to shine a light on it. So thank you for being here and investing in, in, in uh, your time with each other and your family. So we look forward to doing that with you in the next two days. Um, and so when we brought this idea up to Nate, and I can't, I mean, we even have to get more tables out. This is awesome. Thanks, guys. Um, uh, Nate said, oh, I've got the guy. So Dr. Arlen Aday, he's got probably the best sport coat I've ever seen. Um, so he's put together. But uh, I actually knew Arlen from McLean Bible Church many years ago. Um, Missy and I used to attend there. Um, he has actually since moved off of staff to intentionally go into the ministry, or sorry, in the mission field. And so uh, talk about doing, you know, going where your heart is. Um, Dr. Arlen is actually from Cameroon originally, and he is now helping to serve and support um, his mission. He has a nonprofit in northern Africa where some of the really hard, I mean, won't get into it all, I'll let him uh, get into it if he'd like, um, some of the really hard persecution of Christians that are happening in northern Africa, northern Nigeria. And he's actually going there, he's taking people there, and he's helping to uh, serve and support, and he's taking his profession as a counselor um, to that work to work with tr uh, trauma victims specifically, which is pretty awesome. So that's what he does at his nonprofit work. Also, in his professional work, not nonprofit, he also does biblical counseling. So um, I do want to encourage you all, if you'd like to learn more about his nonprofit work, um, there are these brochures out there. Um, you can go through them. It's, it's pretty awesome. I was just uh, reading through it before I got up here. Um, we've got them out on the table where the food was. And then uh, throughout today or tomorrow, if anything comes up for you where you feel like, hey, you know what, I could go a step deeper, I'd like to at least follow up um, with Dr. Arlen, um, feel free to take one of his business cards. This is on more of the professional side. If you guys would like to just follow up, there's, um, th that is a super healthy thing to do. Um, so uh, feel free to do that. But uh, we're in for a treat, so I'm excited to uh, bring up. Dr. Arlen Aday. Let's give him a city light welcome. Hello, hello, hello. Just testing my microphone. Are we good now? Praise the Lord Jesus. Now, that's an African way to praise God, all right? I want you guys just to forget that you're not African and just respond with your brother right now. Can we say one more time, praise the Lord Jesus? Amen. Yes, yes, yes. I want to begin by thanking you all uh, for coming out today and thank uh, Pastor Nate. Pastor Nate has been a friend for several years now, and uh, it's just been truly a blessing to me to let me uh, be 
a small part of City Light the past couple of years. So thank you, Pastor Nate, if you're watching. I hear some people are watching online. Thank you all. Thanks for the, le thanks for the leadership of the church for letting me uh, speak at this conference. I don't take it for granted. I really believe that it's an honor, it's a privilege, and uh, I trust that the Lord, what he has put on our hearts to share with you, would be a blessing to you. So um, I'd like to go ahead and pray one more time, because I believe I just really need the Lord. Um, by no means am I standing here because my marriage is better than yours, or because I have a corner in it. Um, we've been married for some time now, by the grace of God, almost 20 years, but it's not been perfect. So God has been gracious to us. And uh, uh, for those of you coming in tomorrow as well for the parenting conference, you hear me share a lot of personal things and personal struggles in raising our three children to show you that you're not alone in your struggles. We are all in it together by the grace of God. So but today is about marriage, and I want to start by praying, and then we'll go ahead and share with you today what we have prepared. Let us pray. Perfect timing. Father, we love you. We praise you. We are unworthy servants. Oh, Lord, people you have helped in many ways. We stand here humbly to share the little we've learned, both personally, experientially, and in school. Father, help me to communicate your word to your people. And I pray that your spirit will cause their hearts to receive it well. To the glory of your name, I pray for marriages right now that are struggling. Those who just need your grace, they need your touch, they need your intervention right now, Lord Jesus, by the power of your spirit, please use me to bring some kind of enlightenment, some kind of help and encouragement and hope to those struggling right now. And those of us who may be okay, doing well, but we know that sometimes we may be doing, may be doing well one moment, the next moment, <laughs> someone is not talking to the other person in the car. So we know it happens. So I pray that they would be able to uh, store away what they learn for those rainy days. Lord, we love you. And we pray for our friends who are watching online that they be blessed also. To the glory of Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One more time. And I say, praise the Lord Jesus. You say hallelujah. Is that good? Yeah. Praise the Lord Jesus. Hallelujah. Oh, my friends. You sound like an African church right here. Uh, recently, Winnie and I just got back from Egypt about three weeks ago. We were with people who had escaped from Sudan to North Africa to the country of Egypt because of a war going on, and they're traumatized. And many of them, South Sudanese, are pastors and leaders of many other people. They came in to learn about how to deal with their trauma biblically, but also to take it and go help their fellow brothers and sisters who are dealing with the trauma of running away from war. Just imagine houses burnt down, everything they had been working for in their lives lost. Kids lost in some cases, parents dead, family members like really, really butchered before them. It was bad. And so to come out of that and just with just the clothes on your back is pretty traumatic. But they didn't just come, catch this, they didn't just come to feel better or to learn about how to care for themselves, their trauma. They came to get information to go help someone else. That's what our ministry is about. I'm always about trying to bring to the table what I have so that you would take it and apply it to your situation, but also take back something you learned to go help someone else. My Bible school teacher, Dr. Harold Wilmington, who is of blessed memory now, um, used to say, 
Evangelism is like two beggars. One found bread, and he went to tell his friends that I found bread. I ate, but I want you to also eat. We counsel not just to fix, but to prepare. I counsel to equip others. So please, whatever we say here today, it may not fit for your situation, but store it away because you might need it down the road. I want to speak to you today by the grace of God on five rules, five rules for effective communication in times of anger in marriage. Okay, some people never get angry in their marriage. Okay, maybe this side doesn't get angry at all. Let me try this side. Five, I want to see some excitement. That's just what I'm looking for. Five rules for effective communication when your frontal lobes are not working anymore because your system has somewhat reverted to the brainstem reaction. Fight, freeze, or flee. When you are angry, the frontal part of your brain that is supposed to be in charge of rational thinking, executive functioning, shuts down. And often you start acting with your baby brain or your emotional brain. In marriage, you see that all the time. When you get angry, you don't know how to communicate anymore. Suddenly, you forget all the skills you've learned over the years. And you think, oh my goodness, am I becoming a baby again, a toddler? Throwing fits, refusing to talk, walking out in ways that are not even wholesome and helpful. I want to talk to you about five ways, five rules, five principles on how you should communicate or remember to communicate by the grace of God when things are hard. The first point I want to make before I go to the rules is God's word guides us. God's word guides us in our times of difficulty, when emotion is all over the place. We just cannot think straight. Think God's word. God's word. It's a lamp to your feet, a light on your path. God's word can help guide you when things are not rational at all in your brain. So, what does that mean? Therefore, pay close attention to God's word in general. The whole of God's counsel has a lot of insight and nuggets as to how to navigate the rough waters of negative emotion. I'll tell you. When I am upset, I forget that I'm a counselor. Just, just confessing my, my faults right here. It's only afterwards that I realize, oh, I behave right, but should have done better. <laughs> I could do better. I could bring my wife to the table and really have a constructive biblical conversation. I forget the word biblical. So God's word should be remembered when you are having a difficult, hard situation in your marriage. Pay close attention to all of it, not just some of it. All of it because the Holy Spirit is able to take any part of the Word of God and speak to you anytime you want. So, pay close attention to all of God's Word. Now, the entire book of Ephesians, however, so we're narrowing down from the broad entirety of God's Word to a specific book in the Bible, that specific book is called Ephesians, is super helpful when it comes to how to manage or how to understand communication in times when your frontal lobes are not working the way they should work. So God's word guides us in how to communicate in order to keep unity in our relationships. 
If his word were not there to guide Christians, we would communicate in ways that would create disunity, in ways that would hurt people for, the long, for a long time to come. Have you heard the saying, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, that's not true, my friends. Words hurt, and they can hurt for a long time. Oh, I tell you this. Do you know that it is hard to really, really forget even when you've forgiven somebody? Because the brain is wired to remember things. Think about it. Do you know that if your brain did not remember the things that hurt you in the past, you get hurt over and over and over and over by those same things or by those same people or by those same circumstances? And the brain is trying to make sure to preserve your life. So it has to remember negative things that hurt you in the past so that you try to avoid them. So if someone used a crass or bad or negative words on you, often the brain remembers that. If your hand gets burned by a stove, a hot stove, the brain has to remember. That it was red, that's why it was hot. <laughs> it was blue or whatever the color is. It is that color when it's hurtful. Therefore, don't go there. Don't touch it. The brain does the same thing to you. So sometimes we remember that we've been hurt by certain words. Even when we forgive, we remember how we've been hurt. So I want you, my dear friends, to remember that the book of, of, of Ephesians helps you to communicate in order to keep unity in your relationships, even when you are when you are cognizant or you still remember what the other person had done before. Another important point I want to make before I get to those five rules is our vertical relationship with God should make a difference in how we get along with our horizontal relationships, especially our families. What do I mean by vertical relationship? I'm thinking our relationship with God. Think of the cross. You know, there are two, we call them wooden bars, or how you call those, the one that points up, that's what I'm referring to. It's like pointing up to God, and the other one is a vertical, pointing to your fellow neighbor, right? So I'm using that freely to explain relationship with God, vertical, relationship with one another, horizontal, especially family relationships. Our vertical relationship with Almighty God should make a difference in how we get along with our horizontal relationships, especially our families. There is no clearer description than in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapters 1 all the way to chapter 3 lay the foundation as, as it assures us of our vertical relationship and who we are in Christ Jesus. Now Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 1 is a transitional chapter. There's a verse in particular, this verse 1 says, Therefore, because of who we are in Christ and because of our union with Christ. Let me read that to you right now. Because of who we are in Christ. Therefore, is alluding to the previous things said in chapters 1 all the way to chapter 3. Chapter 1, chapters 1 to chapter 3. Therefore, as a result of this relationship with God, let me go to it right now. Follow me. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. It says, I therefore, based on what he had been saying before, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. If you're in marriage, can I see a wave of your hand right now? All right, I see a few people that married. Married, married, okay, married people all over this place. Just in case you were doubting or wondering, 
who put me in this mess? Let's see, marriage is not working. People think that, by the way, when, when the marriage is not working. Remember this. God called you into that marriage. And therefore, there is an expectation as to how you should walk in that marriage. Your relationship with God, your vertical relationship should determine your horizontal relationships. That's what I'm trying to say to you. So Paul is saying, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. With all humility, notice the word, and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love. Your relationship with, with the Lord, who has called you into that marriage, should determine how you treat your, vert, your horizontal relationships, especially how you treat your spouse, your children if you have kids, family members, employees or employers, neighbors, and friends. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity. That's the thing. So the Spirit will help us maintain that kind of unity God expects in marriage. If we understand first how our relationship with Him is first and foremost. So Ephesians 4 and 1 is a transitional statement. Therefore, that's how it starts. Because of who we are in Christ and because of our union with him, we are told to have a walk worthy of that calling and relationship. Very important. And I said again, our vertical relationship with God should make a difference in how we get along with our horizontal relationships. The attitude towards those horizontal relationships in your life is expressed in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2. Look at it with me. Verse 4 and 2, I said again, Humble. How? Humbly. That's the way you walk because of Christ with your partner. You walk humbly, you walk gently, you walk patiently, and you walk lovingly. And then in Ephesians 4 and 3, we find the admonition to endeavor as much as it lies within our power. To endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There are times when, I'll be honest with you, I literally have had to say to myself over and over, walk, Alan, walk with your wife in an understandable manner. Walk with this woman because, number one, God has walked with you like that. Number two, listen to her even when you don't feel like listening. I've been doing counseling and counseling and I come, remember I'm married, she still wants to talk. I'm like, oh no, I don't want to talk again. I said, that's the problem right there, Alan. I can be serving others out there and my family is suffering. So I have to remember and remind myself, walk in a way that's understanding, knowing that that's how God has treated you. One of the greatest verses that I like, like that's touched my life so much in the scriptures is Galatians 2 and 20. It's the time I was struggling with lost issues in my life. I was not being satisfied in terms of what God's word had to offer me. I was going into the, into the internet, that's before I got married. And I've also fallen, even when I was married afterwards. So I'll tell you, I was like, Lord, why do I struggle with this thing so much? What's wrong with me? And the Lord gave me the scripture. I'll not forget. In 2000, I think 2003, Galatians 2.24, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. 
the life I now live, I live it by faith in the only Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be obtained by law, Christ died in vain. That scripture applies even to my marriage, because that scripture told me that I don't belong to myself anymore. I've been crucified. I died. I'm a walking corpse. I live for Christ. I am a slave to righteousness. So when I come home, when I come from my office space at home, and my wife wants to talk, sometimes I don't want to hear, but I remember, oh, he has been so gracious to me. He has listened to me. Therefore, I do the same. So my point, verse 3, we find the admonition to endeavor as much as it lies within you, my friends, to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Do everything. Remember Scripture and treat the other person humbly, gently, patiently, lovingly. Now, let's go to the next slide. So the first is, God's Word guides us. As you think of God's Word, going through your challenges, remember this Word is supernatural, it's powerful. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. This Word of God can literally change your mind, can wash your thinking, can, can turn your convictions around. Depend on it. Second, God's Word doesn't only guide us. Choose to walk in a way that honors God and people. In other words, walk in unity. I will not dwell on that so much because I'm going to go to the rules real quickly. But I want you to at least see this. Choose to walk. It's a choice you make every day in your marriage. It doesn't matter how you feel. It's a choice you make after having understood that God's word has the power to help you and you decide to follow it. Now choose to walk in a way that always honors God and honors people. In other words, walk in unity. If you look through Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, you'll find the themes walk and unity. I'd like us to do this, uh, maybe some kind of an exercise for you to see for yourself. The words walk and unity over and over in, in those chapters. So, there is definitely a theme of walk, quote unquote walk, in a way that honors God in those chapters. Then, Look at all the verses also, if you go, doing, go to do it at home. Look at all the verses that talk about unity. The verse, chapter 4, verse 3, I mentioned that already. Chapters 4, verse 4 to 6, words like one and all. I'll just read that to you. Just follow me closely. Let me read that to you. 4.3 says this. I'm coming to the meat of this. Don't, don't just hang in there with me. It says, <clears throat> it's not for reading, so I can't see with it. All right. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope. You hear the word one and all, that unity. The idea is stay together. <laughs> that is the simplest way I can say it. Stay together. God's spirit wants for you to stay together in your marriage. That's it. The summary of it. One, all. So just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This idea of one and all, one and all, the whole body joined and knitted together, all the way to verse, 24, verses 20, verse 25 of chapter 4. Members of one body, 
submitting to one another, Ephesians 5.21. This idea of unity is what the Spirit is trying to com- com- communicate. Don't forget it ever. As a therapist, I see people who tell me, I have biblical grounds for divorce. I understand there is biblical grounds for divorce. But I have never, since I began officially counseling in 2008, counseling couples, I have never, by the grace of God, ever encouraged any couple to divorce. It doesn't mean that I don't see biblical reason why, but I just cannot be the one to tell them to go apart. Because I know the idea God really wants is he wants unity and oneness. Now, if he doesn't do the miracle through my, my intervention as a counselor, he might do it through someone else. I'll tell him, I clearly see your point. I see adultery. I see the lack of repentance. I see abandonment. I see it. You go and make your decision. I will not fault you. I will not judge you. But the reason why I do that is because of this underlying conviction that God wants oneness. God wants us to fight for our marriages and to stay together as a body. Amen? Amen. Yes, thank you. Now, as we go, that last point you see there, then it expands after that. I've already given some of these points. It expands from chapter to chapter to other aspects. So from verse chapter, chapter, chapter 4, verse 5 and 6, if you look through Ephesians 4 and 5 and 6, you will find the themes walk and unity. Then it expands again as Paul begins to teach about how to walk in unity. And then it expands even further again as Paul begins to teach about how to walk in unity in the relationship of life. For example, husband, wife, Parent-child, we'll come to that tomorrow. My whole time we spent on parent and children, parents and children, and also employers and employees. With all of that said, my friends, I want to talk to you about how it builds up all the way and comes to verse 15 of chapter 4, where you start seeing the rules. The rules I want to talk to you about, there are five rules, and I want you to follow closely. Five rules of communicating In marriage, when your frontal lobes are not working very well. Maybe I say this lightly. Let me me take a break as I enter into these rules. My friends, God helped me in school to spend an enormous time on my studies focusing on emotional disorders. All right? Some of you are maybe a therapist. You know what it means to read all these theories about emotion and how to help people fix it or change behavior uh, passing through maybe their emotions. Um, We use cognitive behavioral therapy for that. CBT was my specialty, actually. I, I know a little bit about emotions, especially about my emotions. I know how hard it can be, my friends, when you're really feeling angry to, to want to follow these rules. I know. So please don't think of it as he's just saying this in theory, he doesn't know. No, I know, because I've been married, number one. And secondly, I have studied these things. So please know that I'm really, really, I, I understand these things a little bit. The rule number one that you have to remember when you are dealing with anger or any other negative emotions in your marriage and you think it might affect negatively your communication with your spouse, because you remember... Communication breakdown is one of the main reasons why people don't want to be with each other anymore, okay? It's one of the main reasons. So you have to guard your communication with each other very well. Number one rule, be honest with each other when you communicate, okay? 
Be honest. And by the way, I'm borrowing some of these even from other places, so I might give you more information. One of my mentors who helped me understand biblical counseling, though I did my doctorate in clinical counseling, this man mentored me in biblical counseling. His name is Dr. Garrett Higby. I'm stealing some of this stuff from him also. So I'm not making it up. It's things that other biblical counselors and clinical counselors believe it. He was not just a biblical counselor. He has his doctorate in clinical psychology also. So being honest cuts across the board, not just for biblical counselors, for anybody who hopes to have a good communication system in their marriage. Being honest always is a good thing. But let's not take it from me only. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. Ephesians 4, 25. If you have a Bible with me. Just go with me there, please, if you, if you don't mind. Let's go. All right, where's my 25? Someone stole my 25 out of this Bible. I can't find it. Anyway, who has 25? Who has seen their 25? Can you read Ephesians 4, 25? This Bible, I just borrowed it. It doesn't have numbers. So can someone read 25 for me, please? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Amen. Can you just tell someone, even if you don't like them, I hope it's not your spouse anyways. No, I'm sure you like your spouse. But can you tell someone, speak the truth in love? Can you say that to somebody? Is it okay? In love. In love. That's a very big part. So speaking the truth in love is what the Bible commands us to do. Blurting out anything in the name of truth. Ah, I just spoke, I just spoke the truth. I don't care. No, that's not what speaking the truth means. You have to care. It's tempered by chapter 4, verse 15, speaking the truth in love, all right? So my honesty in all my human relationships must be motivated by love. Don't say I'm just being honest. I'm just a, a blatant, I'm just a straight person, straightforward. I'm a straight shooter. No, 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 don't say that. I should ask myself if I am saying what I'm saying because I love the person and want what is best for them or if I have got a selfish agenda as to why I'm saying that truth to them, all right? Second point on that, being honest, is venting to make myself feel better in the name of harsh truths is extremely selfish. If you're just venting in the name of, I just want to tell you this bitter truth, the truth is bitter, but it must be spoken, and you don't pepper it with love, that's a selfish thing you're doing right there. Because some people actually pride themselves in speaking their minds. Have you seen that before? I speak my mind. All right? By the way, in, in seminary, someone asked the question, Alan, do you think with an accent? I said, okay, we're coming, we're coming. Say, do you think with an accent? Because you see, your accent is so thick, right? I'm like, if I were to tell you in my accent how I think, I'm sure you will not understand. So let me not answer the question. My professor just answered the question for me. He said, no, people don't think with an accent. Now, if you have to always tell people how you think or what you think, be very careful. You might say things that <laughs> will not be pleasant and will not be good. So regardless whether you speak or think with an accent, that was a little joke, regardless of what you're thinking, my friends, please, make sure you're just speaking your mind, just tempering it with love. So... My honesty in all my human relationships must be motivated by love. I should ask myself if I'm saying what I'm saying because I love the person. Don't forget that. 
Don't fall into this trap of saying, oh, you know what, I just speak my mind. I know the truth hurts. God is truth. Hear that one before? God is truth. Therefore, we should just say it anyhow. It's the truth. But remember, his truth frees us. Don't say his truth in a way that binds people and make them angry the more. If you can help it, don't do it to your spouse. See, while truth is something difficult to swallow because it convicts us, it doesn't mean we need to make it harder to swallow by presenting it in a hurtful way. So, really important point. Speak truth, but always remember to do it in love. Third point on that, why we have to be honest is, another way I may fail to be honest is by denying that I even have a problem. Oh, okay, now, I'm not going to look at this side anymore. Because my, my wife tells me that all the time. I'm like, what's going on? I don't have any problem. And I have a permission to say these things, so I'm not reporting my wife. You know, I don't know about your wives or maybe your husbands, but that's an area that is very hard to speak the truth in. You're hurt, but you don't want the other person to know you're hurt because the thing was maybe so trivial to be hurt over. Or maybe because you don't have the time to talk about it at that time, you see? So you kind of say, you know, I'm not hurt, I'm all right. And it, it starts steaming, and then before you know it, it builds into things that you have you know, to go to see a counselor to resolve. Speaking truth in love also requires that you speak truth even about whether or not you're hurt. You have to say you're hurt, my friends, if you are hurt. My responsibility is to be honest and motivated by love for the individual. God is responsible to produce their results. So even if I don't know how they'll react to my being hurt, I still have to speak the truth to say, you know what, what you said just hurt me. In other words, I can't neglect my responsibility for honesty just because I believe the person may not respond as I expect them to respond. Let me go to this next point in a sober way. I want for you to catch this. Still under being honest. Another way, sorry, make sure I'm not getting When someone asks you, or let's say your spouse asks you, what's wrong? We find that those who don't want to be honest when they are hurt would say things like, nothing, I'm okay. Do you see that that's not really being truthful? Am I the only one saying it, or you actually see that? Let's make sure I'm, we're together on this. Am I trying to be too nitpicky, holier than thou, trying to... No, because they actually can go away believing that what you said was true, whereas it was not. And it could be something that can build up to greater problems down the road. See, while again you may feel that way, because ignoring the issue is easier than working things out at that time, especially when you already know that you are, you are being selfish. That's not being truthful. It's not being honest, my friends. Consider then for yourself where you stand regarding the issue of honesty in your communication. Are you loving other people and honoring Christ as you talk with the people you are disagreeing with? Keep thinking about this as you read through the next points, okay? As I'm going to read and talk to you about these next points, please 
keep thinking about this thing of being honest in your communication. Like brutally honest, but in a kind way to others. Let's look at the second rule that you have to, you have to really think about in, in marriage, especially when you are angry. Rule number two, keep current. The other day, not the other day, like a week ago, my wife and I were not happy with each other or something. And she was talking to me very kindly. Then she said, about 10 years ago, <laughs> I'm like, whoa, I'm not willing to go back. I'm sure I repented about, you know, whatever you're going to say. But she said, no, no, I need to say this. About 10 years ago, I begged her like crazy. We're sitting in the car and waiting for our kids to come out of their Wednesday Bible study. And she, she finally said, okay, I will not go there. Are you the kind of person that keeps count a lot? Like you literally would not let go. I want to encourage you to keep current. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, who wants to read that for us? 26 and 27. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27, please. Can mm-hmm. Thank you. Amen. When you keep count and you're not current, you give the enemy you know, like tools and equipment and bullets and things to fight you back with, all right? So even when you remember, like I said, the brain doesn't easily forget, try not to bring it up when new things come up. It's a difficult exercise to do, but try the best you can. Avoid sinful responses by not holding and stuffing in anger. Because when you stuff in anger, even when you don't mean it, down the road you will notice that what is inside will come out without you meaning for it to come out, right? So when you avoid holding things down like that, then you also are helping yourself to be current when you are pressed. When I'm angry, I must not sin by having a sinful response to that anger. Very important. Don't tell yourself, I can't help it. My father's always been this way. My mom was always responding in anger. Therefore, it's in my genes. No, you must not do it because you are in Christ and he has helped us by his Holy Spirit. So you are able to walk away and say, no, I must not respond sinfully just because I'm angry. Specifically, I should not hold anger in and stuff it in. Sometimes we hold it loosely and we let it go. That's the normal thing we see in real life because we are human, so we get angry. The the decision for you to let go is what I'm talking about. You see, before I did my, I did my dissertation research on, on the effects of pornography on the brains of men, that's uh, several years ago, and I studied 354 men and how these images stick with them, okay? And how it can pop up anytime through what we call automatic thoughts or intrusive thoughts, even when they're not planning to think those thoughts, okay? Before I came into that research, however, I was doing something in some ways related to that. My research was first based on what we call forgiveness therapy. I used to look at how people forgive, the kinds of different forgivenesses, quote-unquote, that people have to give in, in the world of in counseling in general. Not like biblical or Christian, no, just forgiveness therapy. That is something that is a huge topic discussed by even secular therapists, the importance of forgiveness. Letting go is not very easy. And so when I'm saying these things, I don't want you to think I'm not aware of how it works. I'm saying you should not hold on to anger and stuff it in. There's a, there's a process that has to happen for that to happen. 
You can be angry, but don't sin. One of the ways you can sin is that you stuff it. You get it into your black book. <laughs> I don't know if someone understands what I'm saying. Like you literally say, okay, you know what? I'll get them back on this. I know when I'll get them back on this. It's okay to be angry, but don't stuff it. That's what I'm saying. Forgiveness therapy teaches you how to process, you know, um, uh, just offense in ways that would remove it from where it's been stuffed. Of course, the attention is so difficult to let go. I met someone in, in Missouri many years ago. I was speaking somewhere at a youth conference, and I was preaching on forgiveness. And, uh, and she came out and she said, I don't know. I've heard what you've said. I'm so convicted. But I just don't know how to move past this. I said, what's going on? Tell me. I said, my dad killed my mother, and he's in prison. I said, I, I just cannot. I don't have a father because he did this thing. I don't have a mother first because he killed my mother. They don't have a father also because he is in prison. How can I not stop this in? It's my life. It's every day I cannot not think about it. There are complex situations for which you need to seek a pastor or maybe a therapist to help you process through forgiveness therapy. I understand. But many of the problems we deal with in everyday relationships, in marriage especially, are things we can be angry about, but we don't have to go to bed with it. We don't have to stuff it in. The sun must not go down on my unresolved anger. To do so gives the devil a foothold and inroad into my life. The sun must not go down on my unresolved anger. Please remember this. I know it's easier said than done. To do so gives the devil a true foothold. Unresolved anger opens the door to all kinds of temptations and sins. If you are having anger issues or anger struggles, I understand. It can be a very difficult thing to, to navigate. I had one client one time, he came to me, he said, I'm here because a judge has ordered me to see you. I've been ordered by the courts to see you. I said, what happened? He said, because I, I, I headbutted my wife and broke her nose. And I was arrested. I said, tell me more. He said, six years ago, I was accused falsely by my ex-wife's daughter of rape because she set me up. And I know I'm innocent. And they set me up, I went to prison. I came back with that anger, pent-up anger for women, against women. And I got married, I hoped it had gone away, but it did not go away. She did something really mean, very minute, minimal. And I found myself just blowing out and just doing this to her. I, I need help. And I, I, I began working with him, and he asked for me to give him his invoice. I gave it to him, and he said, I want to pay you more. There's too little. Work, the work you're helping me with. This anger is a real demon in me. Let me tell you, my friends, anger can be a big thing, and I believe that God is able to help us with our anger. So if you are struggling with deep-seated anger, unresolved anger, know that it's going to open doors for all kinds of temptations down the road. Do everything to work on it. Agree that bringing up the past in, in times of anger and conflict is unhelpful in your marriage. Agree. Tell yourself to yourself, or tell each other that I know we'll be tempted to bring this up, to bring past things up. But please, let's agree that it's not going to be helpful. And let's do everything to do away with that kind of a way of, of resolving issues. It destroys people when anger gives way to bitterness. 
Hebrews 12 to 15. And bitterness gives way to hatred and vengeance. Romans 12, 19 to 21. So when you choose to work out your issues before the day is over, you can always start the next day on a clean slate. You can always do that. Oh, so many times in my marriage, I have failed in this way. I have pretended to be okay because I'm trying to obey that scripture. But I'm still angry. I'm like, Lord, please take this anger away from me. Anger can open doors to greater sin in your life, my friends. Deal with it. If you don't believe me, ask Cain. Cain, in, in the book of Genesis chapter 4, his anger boiled and burned. And God said, why are you so angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do, if you do not do what, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And the Lord gave him a way out of his anger. And yet he did not. The Lord said, sin is crouching by your door. It's going to destroy you if you don't stop this anger. It's a problem that started from the very beginning. If you're dealing with anger, my friends, to that extent, I'll tell you something I do in my classes, and I do some of these. I have a course online that I do with students. We call that a heart of anger. Or, what was, in other words, a predominant heart attitude of anger. You're leaning toward anger. It's almost like a personality thing that is, is bent in that direction. And you just cannot help it. Sometimes the devil puts his hand on it too. And it just makes, it reinforces it in ways that you don't just need therapy or, or, um, or a, res, a resolve to, to not be angry. You need prayer. So ask someone. Pray and ask the Lord to take it away if that's something that you're dealing with in a serious way, my friends. All right, as we keep going, I want you to remember this. Another way to stay current and not go back to past things a lot is to agree that bringing up past uh, bringing up the past as a means to bolster your argument and inflate your pride is never okay in your marriage. You have to agree on that. Doing so violates the promise of forgiveness that says, I will not bring up your faults against you again. Psalm 103 verse 12 highlights some of that. How does God forgive? Let me just talk about this for a little bit. How does God forgive? And if you understand the gravity of our sin and how Almighty God forgave it, and you continue to meditate on it, it could help you start forgiving other people's sins much more easily. God forgives us by completely wiping the slate of our sins ever committed against him, past, present, and even future. He removes it from us as far as the east is from the west. I believe that he chose to forget it to the point where if we were to bring up some sins, it's almost like the Lord who is all-knowing would say, what are you talking about? I have no idea. God forgives us through and through, and therefore we should forgive one another. Another thing about bringing up the past, when bringing up the past, especially with phrases like, you always do this. Okay, so you guys don't, you know about that? Always, you, you always, you, I, I always look at you like this mean way. Always, like every day of my life, 24 and 7. 
It's called generalizations in psychology. And when we help people realize it's not always that they're doing that thing to you, it can help them forgive. Because sometimes the brain tricks you to think, this, how, they always talk to me all the time. No. <laughs> they talk to you like that when they're angry. They're not always angry. You always do this. We hear those statements. Or you never come home early. Never. You seen that? You heard that before? You exaggerate it. And your brain actually believes it. Your spouse never, ever helps you take off your shoes for those African men around who like those. I'm an African man. There's some things we expect. I learned in America that you cannot expect what you got in Africa in America. Just saying, you know, culturally speaking, I did have the privilege of teaching a course at Liberty University several years ago, 2012, called Multicultural Counseling and Research Issues, where I was teaching my psychology students how to be culturally competent, to know cultural nuances, to know that here it doesn't apply, there it applies. You see someone's marriage, don't judge it too quickly, don't say it's not happening in America, therefore it's wrong. Ah, no. Remember, some differences in culture would happen. So, in your own marriages, you have subcultures. There's some things you expect that may not be biblical or may not be generally acceptable, but if it's something that you, both of you have agreed to do and it's not against God, like a sinful thing, then maybe it's okay. But this is my point. If they're not doing it to you, don't say, you never do this to me. Always realize it's only sometimes. Those generalizations can really hurt people and make them feel like the other person is terrible. What about this? Every time you do this, <laughs> I hear one mm, back there. You're hiding behind someone else's former sin so as not to have a clear communication with them on what the current issues actually are. Don't hide behind their weakness to say, you know what, I'm justified in not communicating because you're always that way. I can also do this. No, don't hide behind someone's sin to justify why you're not communicating clearly. Far too often we are mad about things that we haven't really examined properly. We think we know exactly why we are upset and what brought us there. But the fact that we resort to the past acknowledges that we ourselves need to stop our anger in, our tra in its tracks and examine ourselves. Stop. In, in, stop your anger in, in its tracks. Examine yourself. Am I justified in being this angry about this thing? So, my friends, keeping current, not letting our anger linger in our hearts are very important things. Now, the next rules... We'll drill down on this even more. I'm looking at my time, and I want to make sure we cover this, and we're almost there. Now, we're going to rule number three. Remember, there are five rules. Are you guys okay? Yes. Praise God. <laughs> That's good. Attack the problem, not the person. That's a common one, right? Some of us who don't have a grasp on the language, sometimes we use the wrong words, right? So we struggle. I'm like, okay, maybe in English, proper English. My wife and I spend a lot of our time correcting each other's English, by the way. Just so you know. Or we speak our local language. We're learning English. So sometimes it's a matter of a lack of a rich vocabulary. <laughs> so you find yourself attacking or saying it the wrong way. 
So always endeavor to attack the problem, not the person. When there is a communication breakdown or anger in a marriage, attack the problem, not the person. How do people attack the person, not the problem? Labeling is one of the ways. They label, all right? Labeling is unloving, my friends. It attacks the person or their character. Labeling others with words like stupid and slob or saying things like, I wish I didn't have to be around you, attacks on the person or their character. This does nothing to help solve the problem, but rather makes more problems as those with whom God has called us to walk in unity become our enemies that we attack. Remember that? Chapter is beginning. It's talking about the importance of unity, oneness. You have to do everything to keep the bond of peace. When you start attacking the person and not the issue, you are going to create enmity. You start seeing them as the enemy. By the way, do you know that's a strategy the enemy has used a lot around the world? When you go to places, and in Africa, we've seen some of that in South Africa and other parts of Africa, where before horrendous I don't know, atrocities are committed against people, they must be dehumanized first. They must be labeled animals or called really demeaning names before the person that perpetrates uh, um, um, evil on them would be free in their conscience to do it. After all, it's just a, a dog. You see that? Unfortunately, I wish I didn't have to, we, we didn't have to say this, but unfortunately we see it in marriages too. People, people attack their partner, not the problem, and they use words that demean them in ways that can give them a justification of, as to why they can be treated badly. The human heart is desperately wicked. We do that. Our hearts are dark sometimes without God's grace. So if you find yourself attacking the person, know that your flesh is trying to do that, that trick. Don't let it. It's trying to dehumanize them and 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 position them as the enemy, not the problem, being the enemy. And therefore, it can do any worse things on them because of that. So catch that really fast. So, like I said, this does nothing to help solve the problem, but rather makes more problems as those with whom God has called us to walk in unity with become our enemies that we attack. Second point after labeling which we should not do, is remember that your partner is on your side. It's on your team. They're not on the, oppos the opposite team, right? They are on your side. Think about it. That's really, really important. Any two believers, regardless of their human relationship, whether they're married or not, spouses, parent-child relationships, siblings, employee, employer, neighbors, friends, are on the same team. Don't forget that, ever. And the team they are on is God's team. So remember that it's not really about you. There is one greater than you in your marriage who has brought you together in unity and you belong to his team. He doesn't want you fighting each other. You are teammates with each other and must treat each other as such. We should team up to attack any problem that would divide us and destroy unity. 
I must be committed to just my teammates and see them as valuable to God, just as much as I am valuable to God. And we must work towards solutions, not, not toward separation and toward breaking apart. I want you, my friends, to look at number four, which says, act, do not react. Do the best you can to be proactive, not reactive. In your marriage, when you're angry, don't let yourself to be controlled by what the other person is saying. Because if you allow that, then you start reacting. When I react, I bounce off your words or actions. I let myself be controlled by what you say or do, giving myself over to anger. Second, who does God's word say I should be controlled by? Is it by the Spirit or by other people's words? Can someone answer that for me? Who does God's word say you should be controlled by? By the Spirit, right? So when you know that, you cannot allow yourself to be controlled by other people's words, even if it's your spouse. The Holy Spirit himself must control you. Reactions make problems worse, not better. Actions, when they are modeled after the character of Jesus Christ and are controlled by the Spirit, solve problems and increase unity. I can act like Jesus, regardless of what you say or do. So, let's do that. Always having our eyes on Jesus. Always looking on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured shame and pain, and therefore God has highly exalted him. Always looking at Jesus, he didn't react. He, was, he acted proactively. He did what he was supposed to do. So, don't let your pride rule the way you respond. Make sure you are responding the way the Lord wants. When we choose to act like Jesus Christ, being kind to our spouse, compassionate and forgiving for our spouse. Relationships can be reconciled just as Christ forgave us so that we can be reconciled to God. So let's press in and lean on him and trust him for his power to act like he wants us to act. Being reactionary also points to our pride. Like I said, it points to our pride through someone else's poor choices of words. Sometimes we find ourselves just reacting as a way to pay them back. Not just words or even well-chosen words at times that they intended to bless us with could be misunderstood. And immediately we feel attacked. If I assume that someone is saying you are the problem instead of some of your actions have contributed to the problem, I immediately move toward defending myself. So try not to point fingers to your spouse say, you did that or you are the problem, because it would cause them to also begin to defend themselves. No one wins at that time. I think my wife always wins at this thing. Though. Whenever I do that, I often will end up being the one apologizing. So I realized it. It doesn't mean she doesn't apologize. She apologizes. But I realized that, literally, I think my wife is smarter than me. I really believe that. Believe me, guys, now, ladies, can close your ears. Let me just give this guys a little bit of wisdom here. 
believe me, I realized that women, especially the woman for you, your wife, would very likely be more right than you most of the time when it comes to things like the children, the family, the household. I've tried for tw- I've known the, this woman since 1999. I am telling you, I can almost count with one hand the times I've been right. I'm always like, why am I always wrong like that? I'm a counselor. I'm supposed to know better. It doesn't work like that. Let, oh my, I wish I just said this to guys alone because now the, guy, the ladies may take it and say, you know what? Remember what he said? Please. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> I know. Thank you. <laughs> All right. I'll try to be current. I'll keep it current. So, Try the best you can, my friend, to not point to the person. Don't, 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 don't be accusatory in your tone because you have to come and apologize later about it. Last but not least, rule number five. Listen to understand. Don't just listen to speak. How? Apply the Philippians 2, 1 to 14. Four rule. Who has a Bible? Read that for me, please. Philippians chapter 2 from verse 1 to 4. We are ending right here. There's a rule you have to apply called the Philippians 2 rule when it comes to listening to understand. Who has it? Who has it open? Well, we have that. Can someone open to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 2, 13, 15, and 17? Who's ready? Who's ready? Read loud and clear. Go ahead, ma'am. is key when you listen to understand, not to talk back, not to speak, you'll you go a long way. You'll hear things you never could, would have heard had you not intentionally tried to listen to understand. Make the other person the priority. When you listen to understand, that's what happens. So, when all I want to do is just keep talking and presenting my side of the issue, I'm saying... I'm the priority. You see? I display a blatant disregard for the other person. Now, it's the opposite of what Philippians 2, 1 to 4 is calling us to do. Listen to the other person. Let them be the more important person. Prioritize on their own wants, their own needs, and your needs will be met through that. When you begin to make the other, the other person a priority and seek to listen carefully and attentively to their problem, you begin living out what it means to practice biblical communication. It's really about them. Again, for me, it's Galatians 2. I have been crucified. Dead man walking. I live here for Christ. I walk for him. Every day, I have to remind myself. Listen to understand the other person's point. How you apply Philippians 2, you make the, the other person a priority, Fairly, you carefully listen. What do I mean by that? Carefully listening means that I am paying attention to their words. I don't let my emotions interpret what I'm hearing, but I'm careful to put together the picture as it's seen by the other person. 
put on their glasses, see how they see this issue. It helps a lot when we're listening to understand. So we'll listen carefully by doing that, and finally, we'll listen attentively. Okay, attentive listening means I am not allowing myself to be distracted. I look at the person. I watch their gestures, and I tune my own thoughts out. I do everything to try to listen attentively. I watch their gestures. Are they, are they raising their hand? Are they, uh, are they um, uh, covering their face? Uh, what is it that they are demonstrating by their body language as they are speaking, as they are using words? I am watching carefully and listening attentively for their body language. And I tune my own thoughts. I make sure that my thoughts would, would align with what she is saying or what he is saying. Because that will lead me, if I do not do that, it will lead me toward building a defense. I am listening to defend myself, listening to counteract it. Some of you may be lawyers here, and you know how to counter things so well, you know, and you can speak so fast. Watch out for that. Listen to understand. Carefully and attentively listening then brings us full circle. How can how can I be honest about the problem if I haven't heard what you're saying the problem actually is? I can be honest because I heard what you said. I'm trying the best I can to apply it. So, I'll leave you with this exercise. This is how to exercise the rules, the five rules in your life, in your marriage. Number one, make sure to pray. Because you need to surrender your will to the Lord. You need to surrender your anger. You need to surrender your frustrations. Your desires, all of you, needs to be surrendered to the Lord. Because so you need to be filled with the Spirit. That's why I pray. God, help me. I'm going to have this conversation with my wife or my husband. Please, I need your Spirit to help me. Because you know this anger problem is a problem for me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I can exercise your will for my life and the lives of the people around me, not my own will. Second, intentionally take time. This is the way to exercise what I just said, the five rules. Take the time out. Arguments, especially about crucial issues like changing careers or moving, how to raise the kids or how to spend your money, these are important issues. Take the time to really work on this. And you see, when you take the time to think and to apply these things to your life. Especially when there's an argument around a certain issue. Arguments about crucial, that crucial issue, like life-changing things like I just mentioned before, they aren't the best discussed on your way to the grocery store. Take the time and apply these rules. Schedule it and say, let's talk about this. Let's go through rule one to five. Be intentional and take time to discuss this thing that's bothering your marriage. Prioritize this to change the way you are dealing with the issues in your life. Take this and don't just, like I said before at the beginning, don't just take it and throw it away. Store it away if you're not using it right now because you may need it down the road. Use this rule. It's called a three, two, one minute rule. In order to actually practice the five rules, this is what I need you to take note of. A good and simple trick is to give yourself limited time to explain your side of the story. I practice this with some of the people in marriage counseling that I work with. 
limit it to five minutes at first. I've done it in different ways before, but try to limit it to five minutes. What do I mean by three, two, and one-minute rules? The three segments can be lengthened if you want, however. If you desire for it to be lengthened, 10 minutes, that's okay. Uh, 20 minutes, that's fine too. But just remember what it means. The first person gets three minutes to tell the other person what the issue is. That's the one who's their grieved partner. They are not supposed at this time to tell them how they feel, just what the problem is. Okay? And by the way, we have a copy of some of the things that I'm talking about. would like to give it to the church to do copies for those who want it. It's mostly from, a, from um, like I said before, from... Um, uh, some of the writings of Dr. Garrett Higby, some of them are my thoughts, but um, you can get some of these. So, first three minutes, the person who is their grief partner tells you what the issue is. Not how they feel yet. Feelings are really important. I'll come to that. But not how they feel first. Once you are finished, the other person has now two minutes to speak back to you what they heard the problem is. So if you're not listening to understand, you will not, under, you will not hear the problem. So you listen because you're going to be able to tell them back what you heard them say the issue is. Okay? It's not time to make a defense when you start telling them what the issue is. What you heard, you're not building a defense. So be very careful to only tell them what you heard them say. It's not even time to, you know, to twist things around and to try to make it sound like they're terrible at, you know, for even saying what they said. Remember rule number one. What's rule number one? Be honest. Lastly, the first person now gets a chance to tell you whether you got it right. So you use three minutes to tell them what the issue is. They use two minutes to tell you back what you said. And then the last one, they tell you, yes or no, you were right or you were wrong. You're not here. You're not listening. You see, you always do not listen. No, you don't say that. <laughs> you don't say that. Congratulations. You are now at the very place where you can discuss how to solve the problem after you've gotten it right. In order to do that well, you may choose to use this three, two, one rule again to now solve the problem. So, you each can share what you think is the best solution. After you've used the rule over and over again, you can lengthen it or shorten it depending on what you want. My dear friends, time fills me. I would have liked at some other time to show you the power of this exercise by letting couples in the breakout sessions to do that to each other. Just talk about anything. You may not have any issues right now, but just remember anything that you think you want to communicate. Use that rule for five minutes and see what happens. And then go back and build on it. God bless you. Thank you so much. I will be speaking tomorrow on something which is really critical, I think, if you, even if you don't have a kid, but mostly for parents. Just parenting a child, shepherding a child's heart. I've written a little pamphlet on it, but there is a book I want to recommend tomorrow for you. That book is amazing for parenting. And once I get that tomorrow, you'll see what I mean. And uh, again,
this is our ministry. Our ministry is uh, just reaching the persecuted, doing a lot of trauma work among the widows who are, whose husbands have been killed uh, by extremists, Muslim extremists in northern Nigeria and in Egypt. So uh, when you go over there, you'll see over there. And again, feel free to support, donate. I told Pastor donate. I don't want to receive anything uh, personally. Anyone who wants to give should give to the ministry to support the widows. We're going, we'll be with 3,000 widows in uh, January of next year, and we are mobilizing a team of people to go do that with us. Last, uh, this year, actually, we're with 1,650 widows, um, helping them with their trauma and uh, trauma healing and training 524 pastors in northern Nigeria on just basic tools from the Bible and clinical research on how to deal with trauma. And so it's very, very viable work, and uh, we are very thankful for that. So think about it, pray about it. Some of you may want to come with us. The door is open. If you're medical uh, personnel and you want to come with us, we are going to be with people that have lost 100 friends and family members in that same area just after we left from our last conference. These people came in and killed so many of them, so they are traumatized, and we're coming in with medication, we're coming in with, with therapy and with the Bible to, to help them with their trauma again. So feel free uh, uh, to pray about this and let us know if you want to be a part of it. God bless you again. Thank you, and I look forward to seeing you tomorrow for the two sessions of shepherding the heart of an angry child, how you do that. So come and let's learn together. God bless. Thank you, Ramadan. Thank you, Dr. Arlen. Um, real quick, if you don't mind, um, you can. Uh, I'm gonna do a little exercise because we got a little bit of time, so uh, I'm gonna just uh, freestyle a little bit here. Okay. Um, but if you look at your um, at your tables, there should be little note cards on your table, and there should be some pens. Probably not enough pens for everybody. Okay. There are some pens. One of the things we like to do is to help, kind of just. You know, there's a lot of information uh, mm -hmm. that Dr. Arlen just went through, and it's really helpful to sort of reflect on a little bit of mm -hmm. what, what we just went through. Because everybody's going to receive something different, because I know there's some things like, um, I'll just share for me, like one mm -hmm. of the things that, as, as he was going through some stuff, was really crucial to invest the time on crucial issues. Mm -hmm. So, like Missy and I, uh, and I'm not saying this to, to put a light on us, even though I'm in a light. <laughs> um, we just got back from Guatemala uh, two days ago, and um, thanks, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, the wards did too, and so did Anthony and some other people. Um, anyway, we have not yet actually spent the time to sit down, slow down, and think about all the things that we witness God do, what that means for our life some of the changes we want to make. We've talked about, like you, like you were saying, it's not great to, as you're driving to the grocery store, to be mm -hmm. doing that. And it feels like in the life of juggling kids, getting back in Northern Virginia, turning work back on, um, taking the kids to ballet and all these mm -hmm. things. It's just like, as we're passing each other, we're like, hey, maybe we should do that see I lose thing because my Spanish skills need to get better. And, and now I'm driving to work, listening to YouTube and Spanish stuff. Like, so I'm just like going, but I'm not, resting and slowing mm -hmm. down and the key thing for me was thinking mm -hmm. like sitting down and actually thinking praying asking for wisdom in that because one of the things i do very often is i i sign myself up for too many things because i probably don't think about it and count the cost so anyway i'd like you all to spend some time doing two things one i would like you to write down on a, on a card um, so everybody should get one one sticky or one uh, note card there mm -hmm. and write down one thing 
that you're taking away from tonight that applies directly to you. And then I also want you to, and by the way, um, I'm going to have you, to, I was, I'm going to get on freestyle a little bit. These were going to be feedback cards, so I want you to take that one with you, okay? Um, and then I want you to think about talking to your spouse about that thing. Um, and, and trade notes, it'd probably be good for you to trade notes, not necessarily with all of us. Um, separate, though, I would like you to take another card. Is there enough cards on the table for this? Okay, never mind. We're going to do feedback cards tomorrow. If you're coming tomorrow, we'll do feedback cards tomorrow. And as you're doing that first exercise, yes, Asa? Oh, look at that. See, we got pragmatism here. Thanks, Asa. Um, uh, so, yeah, actually, let's do this. All right, so if you can do that, take your one half home with you, and uh, you can talk. You can put your, your two halves together <laughs> and make one. Um, I love that. <laughs> so cheesy. Um, take your other half. If you could write down uh, one thing that you really appreciated about tonight's um, session, and, uh, and then the second thing I, I'd like you to write down is, one thing you'd like to, to dig, dig deeper on or know more about that was either covered tonight or not. Mm. Um, and if you could just kind of maybe put a plus beside the thing that was, that was uh, helpful, impacted you, and then um, let's just put a triangle, not a, not a minus. <laughs> Be very clear. A, a triangle, that usually means change. Uh, or a star, <laughs> so, something that's not the, the plus. Uh, and what I want you to do is before you leave, this is crucial, before you leave, I want you to walk out you're going to walk past some of those brochures on the table on the right out here, and I want you to drop all your, uh, your half note card in a pile because we're actually going to collect those, and it's going to help us prepare for the mm. next thing, um, and that's really helpful. We'll do the same thing tomorrow. Maybe we'll have mm. more note cards tomorrow. Um, so this was no joke going to be my other thing is I wanted Dr. Arlen to hang out up here just a little bit and give you all some space too. If you have any questions that you'd mm. like to ask Arlen, this is a great forum to do it, and did you already have one? All right, hold, hold up, hold up. Um, I want to give you all some space to think. It's not always great to say, hey, got any questions? Um, it's, it's usually better because sometimes you're like, oh, I'm on the spot. So let's spend, uh, I don't know mm. if we have like the Jeopardy uh, music or just some uh, something. <laughs> um, but if we could spend maybe, let's spend like three minutes and just, I, I, I want us to think on some of these things and what we're taking away. And then at the same time, think about maybe some questions you might have. It could be pragmatic. You could mm. be asking for a friend. Um, that was a joke. <laughs> um, but let's spend uh, three minutes and I'll come back. I'll give you the 30 second, uh, 30 second warning, okay? Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. When are we supposed to end? When are we 8.30. Oh, 8.30, sir. So we done. We're good? Yeah. Okay, then. Do you need a drink or Maybe an extra water, but I don't want to say you. You're a big, you're a big man, man. I can't be saying it.
30 seconds. Oh, thank you so much. those feedback uh, forms, uh, it's one thing you took away um, that you really appreciated and then one thing you'd like to know more about or dig deeper on, um, that's the other one. So just a heads up. I'm going to run around with the mic um, so that uh, we can hear um, and um, folks out on uh, internet land um, can hear. Um, so it, we are on the internet so you may not want to be like, hey, so Missy did this to me and then... <laughs> So, Asa, do you want to kick us off? My, my question's not too profound. I just missed what the one was in the three, two, one. I was hoping you could repeat that. Uh, number one, the first rule. Oh, three, two, one. It's one is the, feet, the person that listened to the problem presented telling, well, the person, sorry, the person that presented the problem saying, yes, you got it right, or no, you did not listen. Because remember, they used three minutes, three minutes to tell you the problem, then you use two minutes to tell them what you heard, and then you have one minute to respond whether or not they got it right. By the way, some people call this couple's dialogue. Uh, therapists call it different things, but it's really something very common that they encourage couples to do, back and forth. Sometimes I tell people to hold a bottle or something, you know, take turns and speak, three minutes, two minutes, one minute, or even more time, depending on the circumstance. All right. Thank you so much. I don't know if this is possible, but, um is it possible for you to do whether like an impromptu or to help us like give a scenario of that situation, like to actually see it played out, what it would look like, even if you'd like shorten mm -hmm. it? Okay. Evelyn here. Yvonne, thank you. Is your spouse here? Are you married or no? You're not married yet? You married? Is, is she here? Do you volunteer to? Thank you. Woo, let's give it out for them. What's your name? Cole. Cole, Cole and Marion. I'm going to create a problem just right now, okay? Just a fictitious problem to demonstrate this. Oh, oh yeah, good. Come on, what a problem. A, can I have a problem from the audience? <laughs> Problems from the audience. <laughs> okay, good. Three minutes to okay, describe. Good. Okay. Honey, we have a problem. The kid is screaming. My nerves are tensing. And I am losing the ability to form words because my brain is full. I can't really handle it anymore. And I think I could use some help. I'm having a hard time asking for help. But um, if I didn't have to put him to bed, that would be really cool. Two minutes. 
So I've heard that our child is screaming. <laughs> both from you and the child. Okay. Um, and I've heard that it's affecting your nerves and that you're having trouble forming words. And that you would um, think that putting the child down, uh, not you doing it, would be um, a way to solve the problem. Yes, that is the problem. Oh. And also... Wait. I'm, I have one minute here. Wait. <laughs> also... A new problem? That's the thing. It's so important to focus on a problem, right? So they listen to one problem at a time. You see, men cannot multitask like women sometimes. We just need one problem to try to fix. Anyway, I'm just... <laughs> maybe... <laughs> so... One problem, to add another one, that's a separate one, right? It's different from this one. It's, uh, I think it's, it's still the one-minute clarification. Okay, okay. So um, it, it takes about two seconds to say yes or no, right? But yeah, <laughs> then to, sure. to make sure that it's understood. Okay, good. If the solution to the problem involves me doing something, I won't do it the way that I'd like to do it, with kindness and clarity because I have lost my ability to function. So I, maybe you said that in your two-minute rebuff, rebuff that, that I, uh, I should not be part of the solution, but I would like to add that. Yeah. And you will not be involved in the putting down of the child. <laughs> Great. Now, stay, stay with me. That's good. It's so good what she did. You see? What we normally do is we try to get you to, even if you think they got most of it right, if they missed an important part, you can tell them that part, that you missed this part. You see that? That way before you, if I move to solving the problem, you know everything was understood. Very important. So thank you for doing that. Thank you. Give them a hand. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This, is, this is like a game show. It's like a game show, right? All right. Any other brave souls? You don't have to necessarily come up in uh, role play. Any other yeah. questions from the audience? All right, okay. Isaac. Uh, could you give a couple examples about labeling? I believe that was in, what, role four? Or, uh, I'm sorry, role three? Role three? Role three, okay. Uh, we used... Let me take it from a, an angle that you may not have expected, but let me say it from a professional perspective, what labeling generally is in our field, especially when it comes to talking with your client or talking to your client. So I'll start from there and I'll come to the context of marriage. Labeling for therapists, and we're very careful about this. Many biblical counselors especially are careful about this uh, because if you label someone, especially when it comes to diagnostic labels, they can take it as their new identity, okay? If you say you have major depressive disorder or you're bipolar too, some people live with that for many years. I used to be a therapist as well for Liberty University for a couple of years. Many of my students would come in and say, I am a bipolar. I am an addict. You see that? I am this, I am that. That's a form of labeling that happens in the therapeutic relationship from the therapist to the counselee. 
we avoid that because that would be, it could actually mar someone's view of themselves. In the context of marriage, labeling is you calling them names, like calling them stupid, like you stupid slob, or things that can just dehumanize and demean someone and can affect their self-image in ways that would take a long time for them to heal from that. Um, I don't know if he clarifies, you see what I mean by labeling in that sense? Because notice this, when you see a problem that someone is doing, if you're not careful, you know, intentional enough, you might think that's who they are because they're doing that thing. Whereas, if you are loving and you just slow down a little bit, you will be able to separate the, be the, the human being, not the human doing, but the human being made in the image of God who is doing a sinful thing. And you can be kind to say, I see you, you love the Lord. I see you love me, you love the family, but you talk harshly to the children. But not, not you are a harsh person. You see that? You are a harsh person. Let me give you another layer to this. People sometimes label themselves, by the way. And if you believe that you are a certain thing, a certain um, type of person, it can be hard for anyone to convince you otherwise. An example. There are people that struggle with guilt. And they tend to shame themselves. Why? Because though they did something that was wrong, for which they should be guilty, they say, I am bad because I did that thing. Therefore, I should be shamed. Difference between guilt and shame? Guilt is you doing something wrong and healthily separating your identity from the thing you did. Versus you doing something wrong and thinking that, I'm never going to change. This is who I am. I am an addict. I am bound. I am a slave to this sin, for example. Though Christ says he set you free, but you, you don't believe that. So because you do this sin over and over, you say, I am that thing. Very important. Therapists labeling people, if you've been labeled by a therapist, I pray that God will set you free from that. Your identity is not what the therapist told you. You are God's beloved, the apple of God's eye. you washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, saved and sanctified. Someday you'll be, you'll be glorified. You've been justified already. You are different from the label of your professional. Second, when we label one another, when your spouse labels you and calls you stupid and things like that, or even fat, you heard those? You are not that. And please stop calling them names. That's labeling. Okay? And if, third, you are labeling yourself due to a weakness in your life, speak scripture. Think, think um, Ephesians 4, 8. Whatever is lovely, whatever is a good report, whatever is excellent, think on those things. Think scripture about what God calls you, what he says you are, not what your actions say you are. You see that? So don't label yourself and don't let other people label you. Okay. Awesome. Any, we have time for probably one or two more. One or two more. Oh, 
think we're all agreed that forgiveness is vitally important, um, but can be very difficult. Do you have any um, practical, physical steps, um, conversations to have with God that are specifics that we could use to practice forgiveness? Oh, great question. Let me come from a higher place and then I'll come to that specifically. Let's start with the different kinds of forgivenesses that we know about, real quickly. We see people in need of, catch this, forgiveness of God. Believe it or not, there are people that hold grudges against God. Okay? And so they, they don't know where to, can you imagine, you, don't, you would not know where to turn if you have a grudge against God. Because the best place to, to go is God's word. So you don't, you're angry with him, and so you don't go to his word, right, to find a solution to the problem. Forgiveness against God, forgiveness of God, is what some people need to do. I'm not saying God is guilty. I'm saying that's their perspective, okay? Forgiveness of circumstances, natural disasters. Something happened to them, a wind, some tornado or something blew their house away. When I was growing up, there was a part of our roof. I grew up really poor. It's a part of our roof, a, a old, an older uh, Plank house, how do you call those, cabin, whose roof was really, really falling apart. So when the wind was blowing, I always would pray that, God, please don't let the wind carry the, wound, the, the roof away. So I used to <clears throat> see other people's roofs carried away and families killed because they didn't have good shelter for themselves. Some people have been hurt by natural disasters. And because of that, they have not let go of that circumstance or that situation that hurt their family. That's a circumstance. So God's circumstance, and then there is forgiveness of other, other people that have hurt you. It could be someone, I've met a lot of people who have been hurt, women who have been hurt by men um, from their childhood, you know, real bad situations, including rape and so forth, and they just cannot let go, even though this person may be dead already. But they're just not able to forgive the other person. The others who have to forgive their spouses or their children or their grandparents. Forgiveness of another person is a big one also. And then there is forgiveness, believe it or not, of self. People who have done bad things to others who were never caught sometimes report to therapists saying, I did this bad thing, though I was never caught. Um, but I feel guilty all the time. So they talk about something called self-forgiveness. Some would not agree that that's theologically sound to do, but I think it plays a role, you know, um, just therapeutically can help someone to let go of offenses you caused against someone else or to yourself, okay? Now, I haven't just highlighted these four kinds of forgiveness. There are other kinds, but there are four main ones I just mentioned to you. Let's talk about how to forgive people from a biblical perspective. Before we talk about that, I don't know if I, can, if I have time. Let me just say something real quickly. What forgiveness is not? <laughs> can I say what forgiveness is not before I come and say what forgiveness is? Biblically? Is that okay? Forgiveness is not condoning the wrong. It's not saying what they did, nah, it was nothing. No. Forgiveness is not justifying the wrongdoer. It's not saying, we're supposed to do it because you did this. Okay? Forgiveness is, what, forgiveness is not, let me think, it's not justifying the wrongdoer, it's not condoning it, it's not denying that it ever happened. Think of the Holocaust. Some people say, it's, 
to forgive it, I'll just say it never happened. It never happened. And so forth. So there are things that forgiveness is not. It's not emotionalism. It's not crying a lot over something. Forgiveness is not all these things. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is intentionally, willingly, accepting that an offense was committed or I was offended whether or not the offender intentionally committed the offense against me and choosing the very time that I was offended to let go of the payment due their sin against me immediately. Letting go the payment I think is due me because of the offense committed, letting go of it immediately from my heart. That's biblical now. If we, uh, Matthew chapter 18, Jesus talks about that. You know, if someone has offended you, sinned against you, go tell it to them when they say, no, I didn't offend you. And then you go bring someone else to come with you. And if they still say no, the Bible says you bring the church. If they still say no, then the church would make a decision about that. But you, from your heart, Jesus said, you have to let go of the offense. Now, catch this. If you let go of the offense immediately, it doesn't mean that you have to give forgiveness by words to them. Why? Some people would not accept that they've even offended you. So if you come and say, I forgive you for what they're not agreeing, they're not saying they did against you, it's kind of... You know, it's just weird, right? So you forgive from your heart, but you can walk away if they've not repented of their sin. Especially if you've done the Matthew 18 thing, you've come to them, you've told them, they keep refusing. You can walk away, but from your heart, you say you owe me nothing. For what you've done, I leave it with you and God. But as far as I'm concerned, I don't, I don't, you don't owe me nothing. You don't owe me an apology. You don't owe me any of these things anymore. I'd hoped you would apologize, but since you say you don't owe me anything... I also let go from my heart. Forgive us our debts, our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. So that's how we forgive. We forgive immediately and we forgive from our heart. It doesn't mean that we'll not remember when we see stimuli or things that make us remember the offense. We see it, it still hurts, but we remind ourselves that as God has forgiven me in Christ Jesus, I also let go. I will not bring it up intentionally. When I slip and fall and try to bring it up, especially in the context of marriage, I repent for doing that. And I say, I'm sorry. I will not bring this up. God help me. That's true forgiveness. 